Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. The reading today is from 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 12 to 21. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we were made known to the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice um, was born to him by majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Wonderful. Good to be with you. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, for the joy of singing your praise, from praying to you, our Heavenly Father. Uh, seeing one another and greeting one another. We thank you for the joy of being your church family and help us now to sit under your word as we consider it. Amen. Amen. It's hard to believe because I'm so innocent looking, but as a young boy, I was very rebellious and deceitful. It was particularly stealing. I'd steal money or sweets or whatever else I could have. I would have stolen the watch that I left in the swimming pool yesterday. Um, And I'd misbehave in class, and I'd be in trouble. And lo and behold, my parents knew nothing about it. Why? Because I was clever at making up a good story. And they would think that I was all nice and sweet. Of of course, at the first parents' evening, my cover was blown, and I was discovered to be the rebellious, deceitful little boy that I was. And it was God's grace to me to be discovered. But I was good at making up stories. I was quick with my tongue. And the stories had a ring of truth about them. That's why people believed me. My story sounded plausible. Well, the claim in the first century about the Christian church was that the apostles were making up the story about Jesus. They'd made it sound plausible, but it was actually lies. Look at verse 16 with me there. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories. When we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Two Peters written around AD 62, 65, that kind of time, most likely from a prison cell in Rome, the apostle Peter writes to the the churches scattered around modern-day Turkey as he'd written his first letter. And he says, we did not follow cleverly devised stories. Why does he say this? Because there's false teachers that are infiltrating the church in that first century. And they're saying, you can't really believe what Peter and Paul tell you about Jesus. You can't re- It sounds good, but it's made. It's cleverly 
devised. Isn't that interesting? The church is now 2,000 years old. Has the challenge changed against the Bible? You can't really trust it. It's not really reliable. It's just made up. Okay, Peter and Paul and Jesus may have existed as people. And truth be told, not even the most liberal secular historian doubts that. They may have existed, but what they then did, and Peter, Paul, and the other, and, and later the church, and because they wanted to keep control of power, they devised a clever story to maintain power. There's bits of it that are true, but overall it's cleverly devised. And, and so here's the question, why were Peter's opponents saying that? Well, we learn in chapter 2, and Sharon's going to take us through it next week. They wanted to justify their greed and their sexual immorality. They said, we know how to find true freedom and, and true happiness. And they appeal to people's lust and desires. And isn't that interesting? It's 2,000 years later. And people say, oh, no, no, you don't listen to what the Bible says about how to find freedom and happiness. Listen to what I say. Or follow your desires. That was what was being said 2,000 years ago. In fact, it was being said since humans existed. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden? The serpent comes to Adam and Eve and says, did God really say? The first thing the serpent does in the Garden of Eden is help make us doubt God's word. And this is saying, God's a spoil sport. You can find real happiness. If you just go and do what he's told you not to do, then you'll be happy. True freedom, true happiness is not found under God's authority, but by taking that authority upon yourself. The false teachers, like the serpent, were undermining God's word. Now, did you notice why this is so important for the early church? Look at verse 13 to 15. Peter talks about, as long as I live in the tent of the body, verse 13. I will put it aside, verse 14. And then in, in verse 15, after my departure. Peter's talking about his impending death that Jesus had told him on the Galilee lake, uh, the beach, uh, in, in John 21, you're going to die and, and a martyr's death. And Peter knew his time was up. Nero was on the rampage and he was killing Christians. Famously, Tacitus tells us he used to light them up as, uh, as torches in his garden parties. And later he would falsely accuse him of starting the fire that burned down Rome. And so here's the question. What's going to guide the church through the centuries once Peter and Paul and James and John have gone. How is the church going to know who Jesus is and, and what it means to follow him once the eyewitnesses have died? If all the eyewitnesses are dead, who can we trust to tell us? So this is a transition, transition letter bringing us from first century when there was no New Testament scripture, but we had the apostles to second century and well, the end of the first and the second where we no longer have the apostles, but we have the scriptures. Peter's word will become God's word to us. Peter's words will become scripture to us in the writings. He says in verse 15 there, I'm going to make every effort that you'll be able to remember these things. And people think he's talking about Mark's gospel. Because Papias in AD 31 tells us, uh, AD 130 tells us that uh, Peter, Mark was Peter's scribe. And Peter from prison is furiously writing his gospel through Mark before he dies. And it's not just Peter who's being criticised and is about to die. Look at, you can flick over in your Bibles, or it's on the screen, chapter 3. Chapter 3 there, verse 16 and 18. Flick over one page or look on the screen. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, Peter says. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. 
He writes in the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. I've always found that a very encouraging verse. When you read the book of Romans and you're lost, and Peter, the great apostle, says, yeah, it's quite hard to understand. You're like, phew, if Peter couldn't understand Paul, it's okay when I can't, you know? So his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So yeah, firstly, Peter says, it can be tricky understanding the Bible. Hmm, okay. Secondly, why? What's happening to Paul's letters? Well, it's the same as what happened to Peter's They're being distorted by false teachers right in the first century there. This isn't later on. This is right there in the first century. But thirdly, most significantly, what else are they distorting alongside Paul's letters? Other scriptures. What does that mean? The Old Testament scriptures. In other words, Peter is putting Paul's letters on a par with the Old Testament. There you have it. Paul's writings are now viewed as scripture in the first century. So 2 Peter 1 is the chapter that helps us why we understand the Bible to be scripture once the apostles have gone. What will guide the church into the second century? It is their writings, Old and New Testament. It's God's provision to us that when the apostles, the 12 designated apostles who wrote or or, or recorded the eyewitness testimony of Jesus uh, are gone, we'll have something to remember him by. Did you see how it works? The Old Testament, the prophet spoke, and that was God's word. About what? Jesus. He came, and that was God's word. And what happened to Jesus? People saw him, the word. And when they saw him, then they wrote. And as those people who wrote left, we have the scriptures today. So we say at our Connect, our our belonging, our, our, our newcomers course here, We subscribe to the Evangelical Alliance Ireland Statement of Faith, which says we believe in the divine inspiration of the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and their entire trustworthiness and supreme authority in all matters of belief and behavior. So, but did they make it up? Should we believe the Bible to be God's word? Well, to those two questions, Peter comes when he is facing false teaching in his day. And he's going to make two points to us. Verse 16 to 18. He's going to say, trust the eyewitness apostles and therefore the New Testament. First point, trust the eyewitness apostles and therefore the New Testament. Secondly, he's going to say, trust the Holy Spirit-inspired prophets and therefore trust the Old Testament, verses 19 to 21. So trust the eyewitness apostles and the New Testament. We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We can trust Peter because he was an eyewitness and he goes on to talk about what he not just saw, he actually is he's an ear witness, what he heard. When Jesus was transfigured before himself and the apostle James and John, the Mount of Transfiguration recorded in the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, Jesus appears in blazing glory before their eyes alongside Elijah and Moses, the two greatest Old Testament prophets. And Peter, as was his usual custom, tried to take control and said, well, we need to build three shelters for you and Jesus and, and your blazing glory and, and, for, and for Elijah and for Moses. And we'll just keep this experience to ourselves. But Jesus says, no, 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 this experience is to go. And not only did Peter see the dazzling white clothes of Jesus, he heard a voice from heaven. This is my son, verse 17 here in 2 Peter, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. So Peter was an eyewitness, you can trust me. Now, interesting question, why did Peter pick the transfiguration and not the resurrection? Mm. 
If he's going to say, I'm an eyewitness that Jesus really is the Son of God, why pick the, the resurrection is sorely a sort of better place to go. Why, why the transfiguration? Well, there's maybe a few different reasons, but one reason, I think, is to strengthen the link between the Old and the New Testaments. Moses went up a mountain, and his face shone as he encountered the presence of God, and he received God's word, the Ten Commandments, and he came back down, and now Jesus is before Peter, in not just his face shining, his whole being is shining. And so it's a link between the Old and the New Testament. So, let's pause for a minute. Is Peter a trustworthy eyewitness, or did he make up the transfiguration? Let's look at the options. Firstly, people have said, oh, no, he's just gullible. People in the, uh, in the early church and Peter, and the, they were just really gullible. Like, it wasn't true, but they wanted it to believe to be true because they, they felt so sad after Jesus had gotten I mean, that's how the liberal scholars write. It's an argument that's made over and over again. You know, they weren't scientific like us. Now, we know supernatural events such as the transfiguration would never happen because we have science. They didn't know that. They were just a bit gut. C.S. Lewis calls that chronological snobbery. To assume people in the first century were less, more gullible than you and I? How dare you? How dare you? And you know they're not more gullible than us because the false teachers don't believe it. They go, no, it didn't happen. And Peter has accusations saying, no, that didn't happen. The false teachers weren't accusing Peter of being gullible. They were accusing him of being what? Deceitful. He wasn't gullible. They weren't more stupid and gullible than us. But they could have been deceitful. And that's what the false teachers are saying. They made it all up for fame and fortune. But just think on that one for a minute. What was the fame and fortune that they got from making... This thought, they were killed. They were killed for making up a myth. No. If it's made up, the moment the bullet, the moment the knife, the moment the cross is before you, did you just to renounce Christ, you made it all up. If you've made it up, you renounce. But they didn't renounce. They couldn't renounce because they'd seen who? His glory on the Mount of Trinity. They can't make this up. And, 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 uh, and not only that, it's too counterintuitive. What happens just before the transfiguration in Mark's gospel? Oh yeah, Jesus calls Peter Satan because he gets it wrong. If you were making up a gospel, you know, Mark is Peter's scribe, and oh, by the way, I, yeah, I'm making this up and I was the one that was called Satan. Huh. Oh yeah, and what happens after the transfiguration? Yeah, I'm going to deny him three times. That's how much of a fool I am. I'm just making up a story and I'm painting myself in the worst. Come on. It's not cleverly made up. Make it up for personal gain. There was no gain. Thrown to lions. That was the gain. Make up a story where you're so foolish and cowardly it's too counterintuitive. Okay, they're not gullible. They didn't make it up. Well, the other claim that comes then is, well, it's just legend, isn't it? it Peter didn't write to Peter, and Mark didn't write Mark, and, and Matthew, and, 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 and we, that was all. It all came in the second and third, you know, the Da Vinci Code kind of story. You know, the church wanted to control power, and later on they sort of figured out the bits they wanted to, to, to enable that. But that doesn't work for two reasons. Firstly, the date of the New Testament. Not even secular liberal historians will say that the majority of the Gospels and the letters do not come from the fifth, uh, 50s, 60s, or 70s. Not just Christian, conservative scholars. And, there's, uh, 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 and the letters of Corinthians and Philippians that Paul writes have bits, for, and that was written around the, uh, uh, the 50s, 
have bits from there in Philippians 2, you know, made in the image, creeds, and 1 Corinthians 15, and this is the first importance that Christ, that comes, they reckon, from a couple of years after Jesus. And again, this is liberal, secular people go, yeah, that's, that's that early. So it's too early to say it came later. And, and the other thing is the manuscript evidence. Just before Christmas, I listened to the most popular history podcast in the world right now, two wonderful English historians called Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook, talking about the historical Jesus in light of the uh, Christmas. Both are unbelievers. Don't believe in God. They're atheists as far as I understand. Certainly don't believe in Jesus uh, being the son of God. And both deny the supernatural. They didn't think there was a virgin birth, and they didn't think he rose again, okay? Because they're secular people. And right at the end of the podcast, Tom Holland says, he, he concludes this way as a historian about the historical Jesus. He says, in his mind, you don't have to be, uh, believe in the supernatural to think that this man, uh, you know, to explain the phenomenon around Jesus in history. That's what he thinks. But then he says, amazing, right at the last thing of the podcast, if you don't want to believe in God, denying the reliability of the New Testament is not the way to go about it. I couldn't believe it. Most popular, it's the most popular podcast in the world, his story. And he said, he, he's not a Christian. He doesn't believe in the supernatural, but he's an expert in ancient sources. And he knows that they are so reliable. F.F. Bruce from a previous generation in a wonderful book. Though it's a challenge. It can be a little bit challenging, but you can read it if you'd like. The evidence for our New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence of many writings of classical authors, the authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. And if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. If you want two very accessible books to help you if this is your area, I can recommend two to you that I read, one as a student and one more recently. Why Trust the Bible by Amy Orr Ewing. Ten questions to ask the Bible. She grappled with it in, in Oxford University as an undergrad and being, you know, thrown under the bus and you can't believe all this. And then one of the world's best scholars right now, Peter J. Williams, Can We Trust the Gospels, came out uh, one or two years ago. Excellent little book. But here's my fourth point. Who made up the genius? If Peter and Paul and Mark and Luke and John and all the rest didn't write the New Testament as eyewitnesses who saw the glory or went and asked for eyewitnesses who saw the glory of Jesus. Who did? Tom Holland again. He's in the, he's, he wrote this magnificent book called Dominion, uh, talking about how Christianity has shaped our values in the West, values of justice, equality, mercy, freedom, human rights, human dignity. He's an expert in ancient cultures. He grew up loving them. He says, all those things, forgiveness, mercy, looking after the weak, love, sacrifice, you don't get that from the Egyptians. You don't get that from the Persians. You don't get that from the Assyrians. You don't get that from the Babylonians. You certainly don't get it from the Greeks and the Romans. The only place you get all those values that we built our Western society around is the Bible. He argues in 500 plus pages, very persuasively, so here's a question. If we've built Western civilization according to the values, particularly of Jesus and the Apostle Paul, Holland argues, and it wasn't them, and Jesus was just a fraud, and they were just, who created this genius that we built our civilization on? Someone must have done. And if it wasn't because there was actual eyewitnesses who saw his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, and, went, <gasps> and they, and someone else, is an, the genius came, from, who, who did it? 
Glenn Shrivener has made this point brilliantly in a recent book that I also recommend to you, which is basically, according to Shrivener's own word, Tom Holland Light. So if you'd like to read Tom Holland Light's Dominion, you can. He says this, Perhaps the gospel writers were not to be trusted. Perhaps they took strands of the historical Jesus and wove them together with extraordinary prophecies from the old to create a fabulous tale, one that would take the world by storm. It's worth pressing into that possibility. If nothing else, doing so reveals the scale of the project of making all this up. Imagine the writer's room as someone commissions the authors of the Gospels. Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, I have a job for you. I know you've had no training or prior experience, but we need you to write the most influential work of literature. As for the timing, we'll have to move on this, unfortunately. It would have been better to wait a couple of centuries before inventing our legends, but uh, that way none of the Christ's contemporaries could contradict our story, no false teachers. But um, we are as we are. The Apostle Paul has forced the pace. Writing his letters to the churches around the Mediterranean, Corinth, Philippi, he's been preaching Jesus as the promised Messiah, and heaven knows why, but all these people believe in God of the cross. The story seems to be working, so we need you to fill in the details. Please, can you write the origin stories of our hero? Paul's letters gave us the bare bones. Uh, We want you to put warm flesh on them. Uh, Are you up for it? It won't be easy. We need this to be the life and times of the greatest figure in human history. God, but also man. Sinless, but fully alive. Pure, but with profound depths. The judge of the world, but with bottomless compassion. The fulfillment of all Jewish hopes, but with a global appeal. A man in time, and a man for all times. We need a hero with heart-melting kindness yet steely determination. We need him to be blasting the self-righteous and befriending sinners. We need sublime ethical teaching to fall from his lips, the kind that builds civilizations, the Sermon on the Mount. We need extraordinary miracles from him, the kind would have been noticed and, and therefore could be contradicted by the generation to which you are writing. We need a credible narrative arc whereby he remains impeccably righteous but nonetheless is condemned as a blasphemer. And we need, it all up, we need it to all stand up to the scrutiny of scriptural, theological, geographical, linguistic, literary, and historical background. It needs to be believable both near and far, now and later, for those who lived those, uh, through those times and for all generations to come. Now get on with the work. Cleverly devised stories? By who? By who? Peter says we saw his power and his glory. There's no way you'd make this up unless you were an eyewitness there on the Mount of Transfiguration. But it's not just the, it's not just the New Testament, is it? We go, well, what about the Old Testament then, Steve? What, what do I do with that? Uh, are they made up? And Peter says no. Look there in verse 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. But prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Yes, humans wrote the words down. Yes, there was Paul and a Peter and an Elijah and a Moses and, a, and an Amos and all the rest. And they were writing, but the Spirit was guiding them. This wasn't invented in the mind of Moses or Paul or Peter. This, was, this wasn't their own. The origin was in the mind of God. And they were spoke as they were carried along. 
A bit like building a great cathedral and the architect has the mi- uh, is the mind behind the cathedral. You're into Barcelona and you see Gaudi's a, an amazing mind behind it all, but other people have to get on and do the work. And that's how the Bible is. There's a mind behind it all, but then other people go and do the work. And, and that's why Peter in chapter 3 puts Paul's letters on a par with Scripture. Paul too was being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And here's the nail in the coffin for me as I've grappled with this, because you have to grapple with this. This was Jesus' view of the Old Testament. Famously, and this is one example of many, he's debating with the religious leaders in Mark 12. And he quotes Psalm 110, the Old Testament scripture. And look what he says about the origin of Psalm 110. David himself, David's writing, speaking by the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David, that's what Peter says. Peter and Jesus are aligned. This is how the scriptures come about. Yeah, men wrote it, but they were being carried along. Jesus repeatedly quotes the Old Testament as the word of God. He quotes it as authoritative, sufficient, reliable, clear, unbreakable, and coherent. The Old Testament was his Bible if he thought it was good enough to be scripture. Who are you to say it's not? And he gives a provision for the New Testament by giving the same Holy Spirit in John chapter uh, 14, 15, and 16 who was going to guide the apostles into all truth so they could write down and be carried along what they'd seen and heard. Now, one more thing. A lot of people I've heard over the years say, yeah, yeah, I like Jesus. I just don't like the Old Testament. I like Jesus, but I just don't like Paul can't do that, can you? Because Jesus says all the Old Testament's God's word and Peter says, no, Paul is, is put on a par. You can't say, I'll take bits and I'll take the... It's all scripture. It's all to be obeyed. You can't say, well, I don't like that bit that Paul writes. I, I, I can't understand that bit in the Old Testament and therefore I don't... Look, we might not like it and we might not understand it. We have to grapple. I'm not saying... It, but we can't dismiss it and say it's not scripture. Michael Green puts it like this in his commentary. We are on a pilgrimage throughout our lives into this dark world. God has graciously provided us with the map, the scriptures. If we pay attention to them for correction, warning, guidance, and encouragement, we shall walk wisely. If we neglect them, we shall be engulfed in the darkness. The whole course of our lives ought to be governed by the word of God. Peter says that to his readers who are going, well, these false teachers true, is it all made up? And may I be as bold to say the Holy Spirit says it right now. There's no other place we can go for authority in our lives. So two applications. Firstly, if you have intellectual doubts about the reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible, read the two books. I've got other ones on the Old Testament there as well. Put your mind at ease. Be confident in the eyewitness records. But all that said, the real reason people reject the authority of the Bible is not that they've looked to the evidence and found it wanting. That's not what the false teachers had done. The false teachers were rejecting what Peter said because they wanted to justify their lifestyle. Why were they rejecting Peter? Because they were living greedy, sexually immoral lives and they didn't want anyone to tell them otherwise. The reason people reject the Bible, unless you're in an academic institution, 99% of the time is not because of intellectual doubts. It's because of unsubmitted lives. 
I'm unwilling to give up my idea of freedom and happiness. I'm unwilling to give up following my desires and emotions. I'm unwilling to give up that relationship that probably doesn't honour Christ. I'm unwilling to give up that habit that I've just got so used to, but I know the Bible has something to say about it. I'm unwilling to go against the cultural flow and be the alien and, and what will my friends think of me if I... Does the Bible say that? And if I... No, I'm not willing. I want to fit in. I'm unwilling to give up my time, money and skills to serve other, others and further the gospel cause because I just want to build my own little. The Bible says I should probably... Nah. The reason we don't want the Bible as authoritative over our lives is not intellectual, but it's moral. I don't want to submit to what God says about money, sex, truth, heaven, hell, the baby in the womb, and a load more other things that our culture today finds hard. The false teachers in Peter's day were not willing to forsake gratifying their desires and subjecting their opinions to another authority, and nor are we. We don't like... None of us naturally likes God being in charge. We don't like having to submit to the Bible. We want to be in charge. We want things our way. We want to fit into a culture that we live in. 2015, the church is one year old. What happens in 2015 in Ireland? We become the first country in history to vote for same-sex marriage by popular vote. As you can imagine, I'm a pastor of this new church. It's got 20 you know, students and young people in their 20s, typically. I was asked a lot of questions about what I thought about same-sex marriage and homosexuality. I'll never forget one of the conversations with a young Christian lady, studied, bright girl, studying at Trinity College, but also a sensitive woman. Let's call her Aoife. I met Aoife in a cafe in the city centre, and she wanted to know what I thought she should do as an Irish citizen as it came to the referendum. Which way should she vote? I didn't answer her question. Instead, I just asked her one question. Aoife... Where does your authority lie? On what basis do you decide what is right and wrong? I'll tell you what Aoife said in a minute. What about you? Where does your authority lie? On what basis do you decide what is right and wrong? Well, Aoife paused. She thought. She got tearful. And then she said, Steve, I guess my feelings. And then she went on to talk about the pressure from the friends in Trinity College that if she voted one way, that would be hard to justify. Do you see, the word sat under her feelings and cultural acceptance. I was so grateful she was honest with me. We were able to be, have a conversation about what the Bible has to say about marriage, homosexuality and sex and how we must let the Bible dictate what is right and wrong, not our feelings or our culture. But that's what's really going on in my heart every time I don't like what God says. I'm no different to Aoife. Oh God, I know. I just want to wiggle out of that one. I just... And it's for us, it's different. It may not be the homosexuality issue for me. It could be the money issue or the, the comfort issue or the big decision you're making. And Think about Peter again. If you will sit under God's word, this is the good news, it will change your life. What changed Steve Vaughan from being a deceitful, stealing, rebellious, story-making 
little boy. Well, yeah, the Holy Spirit. But as the Holy Spirit, what did he do? He gave me a love for the scriptures within God's community, and I learned to sit under it. And I don't steal anymore. <laughs> You'll be glad to know. Yes. <laughs> or am I? No. Uh, well, what about Peter? In Mark's gospel, he's a coward. He's foolish. His fear often gets the better of him, or his impulsiveness. He's rash. And here he is, on his deathbed, in a Roman prison, right into these young churches. He knows his time is gone. He's thinking about the church through the centuries. How is it going to continue without us here? And yet he has great poise. He has no fear. I'm about to depart. It's just a departure to where my life, where I, I really belong. You want to grow a faith like Peter's? You want to grow as a Christian? You want to face death without any fear? You want to get to the end of your life and not regret any stupid, rash, impetuous decisions which were based on your feelings or the latest cultural fad which will change in 10 years? Sit under God's word. Make it your supreme authority for all matters of belief and practice. Let it guide you. Read it every day. Read it with others in your city group. Come on a Sunday and sit under, its word, under the word as it's preached and take some notes because you might want to reflect on that. Wrestle with it, of course. I've wrestled. I still wrestle with it. Be honest with it. Doubt it. Get frustrated with it. Get angry with it. But sit under it as you emotionally engage with it. Let it bring you through your pilgrimage in this dark world into the next world where the light of Jesus will mean you not only need the scriptures but we won't even need the sun. You see that it says until the day dawns and a light dawns in, and the morning star rises in your heart. What's he talking about there? He's talking about how when you read the scriptures you get to know Jesus and as you know him like Moses as Paul said we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And one day, John says, when we see him, we will be like him. We know in part, one day we'll know fully. Stick with the word in every matter of belief and practice. Let it lead you from this dark world into his glorious light. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the courage of, of Peter and Paul and James and Mark and Matthew and those other gospel and, and New Testament writers who told us about your glory and your majesty. And we now, 2,000 years later, get to sit under it and we sense our heart glowing as we read your word. We sense Jesus becoming closer to us as we read your word. And uh, Lord, for each of us, it'll be a different issue that we wrestle with. But may we not be those that put our feelings and our opinions and our culture above your word. May we sit under it. May it be our authority in all matters. And may we as a church then grow to the day we're on our deathbed and we can say to confidence to the next generation, stick with God's word. It will guide you through this life and into the next. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.